It's the 5th of September, 2015, and this is episode 244. This show is intended for informational and educational purposes only. Cryptocurrency is new, empowering, and exciting, but we're not experts, just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future. On today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin, we're at the recent Keynote 2015 conference, courtesy of Mo Levin and Rob Mitchell of the Bitcoin Game. This time, we're listening into the folks who put their money where their mouths are. With this, the investing in the blockchain panel. Enjoy the show. I'm Evan Hansen. Uh, I'm an editor at Medium, which is a new platform for writing and reading that's uh, created by Ev Williams, the uh, creator of uh, Twitter. And uh, we've started to see a ton of people writing about Bitcoin and blockchain. And so that got my interest. And I've been uh, meeting with people here at this conference, Keynote uh, 2015, and uh, trying to spark even more better, deeper conversations about uh, these issues on on Medium. Uh, Joining me today, uh, we have uh, Bill Tai, Kite VC. a prolific investor, an angel investor. Um, Rafe. Rafe, Rafe first. Uh, he's a co-founder of Crowdfunder. Uh, Matthew Rosnick. Tally Capital? No, not here. Um, Steve Waterhouse um, with Pantera Investment. Um, and uh, we have Brock Pierce. Um, Chairman of the uh, Bitcoin Foundation and uh, also uh, the co-founder founder of Blockchain Capital, and Mark Vanderchus, uh, Cross uh, Cross Pacific Capital. So uh, this is a fantastic group of people who've been doing a lot of work uh, investing and identifying companies, trends, ideas to uh, take blockchain and Bitcoin forward. Um, and it's a really awesome time to be thinking about issues about investment in, in these areas. We've seen a number of big inflection points, uh, which I would describe primarily as the emergence of uh, the blockchain and infrastructure alongside Bitcoin and currency as a real investment opportunity. Um, the entry of the big financial, traditional financial players into the, into the investment space in, in blockchain. Um, and a huge acceleration of investment in, uh, in, uh, in this area. Mattermark uh, recently reported that uh, Bitcoin is the fastest growing area of VC investing right now, growing at 151% year over year as of January. And so just to frame up the conversation here, I want to sort of deal with three main talking points. And the first is just um, where are we in terms of the currency era of, uh, of uh, blockchains, uh, aka Bitcoin, versus infrastructure and, and the uh, blockchain, uh, post-currency era, and the impact of the traditional financial companies in this space. And Brock, I was hoping that you might kick it off. Um, you know, you just uh, uh, created a seven million uh, fund for uh, blockchain investment. Um, you changed the name of your, uh, uh, your, your firm from cryptocurrency partners to, uh, to a blockchain uh, partners. So I'm just curious, what is your take on uh, the, rele- the, the, the investment opportunities now in currency versus blockchain, have we shifted to where there's still real opportunity in, in Bitcoin currencies, alt currencies, Litecoin and so forth, or have we really moved to a place where blockchain and infrastructure is where the real opportunities lie? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, uh, the first sort of wave of 
call it venture and angel investing into the ecosystem, was really around Bitcoin and building out the basic infrastructure. Think of it as the bridges, the roads, the tunnels that made Bitcoin usable. If you, you, you compare it to, call it the early internet, when you had TCP IP, that was great, cool things could be done with it, but the average person wasn't able to use it until you built things like email clients and browsers and DNS and search. And, and, and so in a similar fashion, I think most of the early sort of investments was in what I call basic infrastructure around Bitcoin, though there's other applications, you know, as other things get built on the blockchain. I think most of the sort of, uh, those bets have been laid at least in the developed world. There's still, I think, early sort of call it basic infrastructure bets that can be made in the developing world. Um, but I think most of what we're looking at today are the more advanced sort of call it 2.0 applications that are centered around blockchain, finding uses for this technology beyond just Bitcoin uh, and beyond even just things like financial markets. I mean, the stuff that I'm most excited about is seeing interesting use cases where people are taking this distributed ledger technology and applying it to, you know, just a lot of industries that are old and still kind of built for a world of paper. Uh, Bill, maybe you could weigh in on that. Just tell us what you think are the most exciting uh, areas here for you, uh, what you're thinking about. Yeah, so I, um, to frame it a little bit, so I, I look at the technology underlying Bitcoin, of course, blockchain as something that's basically a virtualization technology, meaning you can represent something with something else. And if you think about it, we're in a world now where, where there's so many little assets that historically have been underutilized that now are getting more efficiently utilized, like Uber with, you know, black cars or rentals through Airbnb, and that can really be applied to anything in the so-called sharing economy. And if you think about it, um, Uber, in a way, is, a, an, is an expression on top of a software platform that allows the temporary transfer of a car for five or 10 or 20 minutes. Um, and they built all that stuff, and it's you know, very efficient, and it's proven to be incredibly useful. Whether you express a car or an apartment or a piece of value in a coin, it's all kind of the same thing. So I'm looking at blockchain as essentially a, a kind of like TCPIP. It's a software protocol underlying the efficient utilization of assets of any kind. And uh, you know, you'll hear a little bit more about it later, but we, we did this little thing on, uh, on Necker Island with Richard Branson where I got a bunch of people to think about applications to be put on the blockchain for social good. And you'll hear some things that came up there, you know, anything from carbon credits to uh, uh, trackers for social media to um, land titling. You know, there's so many things that can just, as Brock said, get rid of reams and reams of paper. You know, so I, th I think it's a massive opportunity. You know, one more thing, like, if you think about, say, like, a, you know, there's so many Japanese trading companies. Everyone's heard of Sumitomo or Ciito or Mitsubishi or what have you. If you think about the, the structure of those companies, they all have a bank, they all have a shipping line, and they all have a skyscraper in Tokyo with 15,000 people each processing boxes of fax paper, you know, tracking stuff around. You know, that there's so many things, so many assets in every category of everything in this world that need to be tracked and you can express it all on the blockchain. So I, I, it's hard to answer because it's so big. Uh, Rafe, you pretty much agree that we're kind of past the currency investment zone and we're totally at the 2.0? Uh, yeah, I agree with that for sure, and, and I tend to look a few years out, and what I see as the most exciting is, is even the 3.0 for uh, technologies for helping us organize activity. So distributed governance, for instance, of corporations or even, uh, even governmental bodies, and I know Brock, you were up 
uh, at Ephemeral, uh, where they're doing floating, uh, floating nation states. So how do you organize the behavior of people? How do you track things like um, uh, who owns uh, what portion of the cap table? Uh, so distributed ledger technology really empowering a new way of organizing people, whether it's in corporations, governments, or NGOs. I think that's really exciting and, and just wide open. Mark? Yeah, I, I just again, would you weigh in on this? Uh, are we, we've, what about the altcoin and, and the Bitcoin kind of as an investment opportunity right now? Well, I mean, I never really invested in any altcoins um, because I, I feel that something that has a the network effect is very difficult to beat. So I always focused in terms of currencies, I always focused on, on Bitcoin in the beginning. Um, so, and I also don't think any, any altcoins will have a big future. I do think some tokens could be, could be, could be valuable. I mean, um, you, you, they don't have to be Bitcoin tokens, they can be different, different kinds of tokens, but they, they won't be currencies actually. Um, and also, I mean, Bill, I, just, I agree fully with you, what, you, what you just said, but I think the, the, the era of, 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 of yeah, Bitcoin as a currency or cryptocurrencies in general is not over yet. I think it's, what's, what's missing at this point is really the killer app. Once that killer app is there, I think it could still take off. I think we're, we're too quickly saying, okay, you know, blockchain is the next big thing and sort of forget about, about Bitcoin as a currency. I, I still think it, it could happen. I'm just, but just for the record, I'm still very long Bitcoin. In, uh, in the world of currencies, today is an interesting day. On Thursday, what, last Thursday was Frontier, uh, the launch of Ethereum, and today is the first day that Ethers begin to trade uh, on all the exchanges. So it's kind of an important day for alternative currencies. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I think I draw the distinction between investing in the currency and um, investing in companies that are using Bitcoin primarily as a currency function. And um, so, for example, remittance, um, cross-border trade, those kind of applications. And I think we are starting to see the emergence of, of real traction in those areas. Um, I think that the, the big surprise for me was how fast the financial institutions are adopting uh, the blockchain technology internally. I, I just got back from New York because of a, a different conference last week, the American Banker Conference. Um, and the audience was full of people from Wall Street. And the conversation at, at a reasonably high level, Bill was also in a, in a meeting with myself and um, some Wall Street executives. The conversation is that the, the revenues in these organizations, they're not, they're not cranking up like you know, we're expecting you know, startups to do. Um, they're relatively flat unless they buy another company. And so the way to make more money, more profit, is to cut costs. So blockchain emerges as this technology to cut costs in the back office, whether it's doing a um, securitized debt, um, issuing private stock, public stock, intraday liquidity, there's a, there's a whole series of applications that unless you're inside a bank, you don't really understand. So there's people coming out of those banking environments and starting companies, there's people inside those banking environments getting this technology and using it. Um, I think what we'll see further down the line is the convergence of these two ideas. Um, so you have a whole bunch of contracts eventually written on the blockchain and then if you want to settle those contracts, of course, you can do a wire or you can use Bitcoin, which probably would be a lot more convenient. So I think eventually we'll see a convergence because of that interest from the financial services space. Yeah, actually, I, I want to chime in on that because he and I were, we were meeting with, um, um, I guess, operational executives at one of the largest, literally one of the largest banks in the world. And getting a handle on how they're measured and what's important to them in terms of, uh, you know, their, their own sustainability. And it, 
the, the important thing I took away from a piece of what you just said is that the banks are really measured on uh, kind of capital ratios and efficiency of the utilization of those assets. And so they're basically measured on return on assets. And to the extent that there's a technology that brings a lot of efficiency in that either reduces that asset pile that they have to hang on to or allows it to be used more quickly, kind of like working capital. You know, how many inventory turns, how many working capital turns can you do? It's better for them because they can't grow their top line very much. And blockchain is essentially, it's like a, it's, it's a supremely efficient way to, uh, to kind of keep track of your assets and, and quickly turn them over. So I think it, they, and they see it. You know, we had that kind of head of operations, head of back office kind of keeping, um, whether it's uh, keeping track of ownership of securities or, uh, or the merging of, of multiple acquired entities. So all the big banks now have been really the result of the consolidation of lots of other pieces of their banks. So they have a, kind of a spaghetti mesh system of lots of different acquired things and they'd like to just hit the reset button wipe it all out, turn it into one common platform. It's going to be a while, but... Yeah, so I was reading some of the coverage of the, the American Banker uh, Conference, and it seemed like one of the big takeaways from that was there's a split between the people who are almost pro-Bitcoin blockchain, saying that the future is going to be built on that. It's the most robust, it's the most secure, it's got momentum. Uh, and the banks who are seem very clear that they want to separate themselves from that, from the Bitcoin blockchain. And is this like a... Uh, a permanent fork, or is this uh, something that eventually comes back together again? Uh, I mean, is there a way for these two yeah. worlds um, to interrelate? I, I think, you know, the, the, the Bitcoin internet analogy isn't perfect, but one thing that I'm, I am noticing is um, in the early days of the web, people liked to call the internet the information superhighway or, or some other version of this, and then they had things called intranets, which we still sort of use somewhat, but we don't really talk about so much. And there was even concerns that we were going to run out of internet addresses. And then people discovered network address translation and ways to segregate your firewalls and so on. We're just seeing this, the emergence of the same idea, which is that the same technology is going to be used inside banks in what they're calling private blockchains. Um, they're trying to relabel these things, distributed ledgers, rather than Bitcoin or blockchain. Um, but you know, like one of Bill's investments, Bitfury, the, these guys have the, the best ways to secure this network. And the banks are going to need that technology internally as well because last time I checked, these guys still have problems with bankers running off with money, traders running off with money and hiding it and you know, causing huge holes in the end. So there are fraud and security problems inside banks as well as outside banks. But there's no reason why you should need to know everything that goes on inside a bank or in the Internet of Things example, you don't need to know every single device that GE has on the blockchain. That stuff is easily hidden and doesn't need to be public. All right, so let's shift to uh, some more specifics. And what, what, what are some of your favorite examples of uh, non-currency blockchain investment opportunities? Uh, Ray? Well, I mean, <clears throat> if what you're saying is true, um, then I think there's a, there's a real opportunity for uh, folks who are building the glue between the various different uh, blockchains, right? So, um, you know, I would... Uh, I would ask uh, you know you Steve if you if you know of any particular companies that are working on that particular problem. Um, yes, it's a little challenging for me to call out companies because um, we are doing some deals, some of our first deals in the blockchain space outside of financial currency, but they're not announced yet. But um, you know we're seeing great investments in in the Internet of Things space, um, and I think as you were saying, I think there's really interesting opportunities for. Um, 
people building mining technology and blockchain software to sell that into organizations like the financial services. I think there's, you know, and then provide services on top of that. I think there's some interesting ideas there to work on. Um, I, I, I echo this idea of the death of paper. I mean, I mean, you know, we, we really, we print things out, we make them in a computer, print them out, and then sign them and then scan them in. And it's just, there's nothing digital about what we're doing. And uh, I, I, I lose pieces of paper all the time. If you give me a valet ticket, it's gone within minutes. I don't know where they go, but they're, they're all gone. So even that example, like, you know, conference passes, the, the whole space of things where we use pieces of paper to authenticate ourselves. Um, I think the identity space is fascinating, whether it's identity for people. Um, I, I was traveling a lot recently, and I, I was using this example of we use paper to authenticate everything that we transact, even people. If you don't have the right papers, you can't cross a border. And if it's expired or you've, you know, you've lost it, you've, you're out of luck. And I think that the transition of when, when is a piece of paper identifying you or a thing or a piece of trade, that's the, that's the play, whatever that is. It's a very broad um, kind of outcome that you could see from this. Is there there's some more like sort of practicalities we could look at in terms of the, the, a killer app that will drive us towards this type of uh, future? Well, I think most of the growth over the next 12 to 24 months is going to be playing to what is Bitcoin's greatest strength, which is cross-border transactions where there's just tons and tons of friction. You know, the world runs on T plus three just here domestically. T plus three, meaning financial transactions in the United States, takes three, it takes three days to settle. And when you start dealing with cross-border transactions, that can be T plus five, T plus seven. Um, and so I, I, that's what Bitcoin does best. Uh, we're not seeing sort of the consumer adoption at the rates that everyone you know, would like or hope for. But uh, so I think most of the growth is going to come from companies that are either providing remittance type services, either for individuals or corporations, but in such a way where uh, the users don't even realize they're using Bitcoin or blockchain technology because it allows you to settle transactions across borders faster and or cheaper. Uh, and so you see on the consumer side some cool stuff uh, as well as on the business side. Uh, one of the companies I, I, I like very much that we're both uh, uh, investors in is a company called BitPesa. Um, I think Africa, because it's got the least amount of infrastructure and incumbent sort of players that would be trying to create roadblocks, I, I think of Kenya and Africa as kind of ground zero for sort of Bitcoin and where this technology can take off in a sort of mass adoption type fashion. Kenya in particular because of 68% of payments over there are made today using cell phones, using a digital currency called M-Pesa. So the human behavior has already been trained and I think that you could see in a very short period of time uh, mass adoption. You know, similar, and the human behavior is important uh, in the same way that Apple Pay is kind of not taking off. Uh, it's because we have all got credit cards in our pocket and the incremental benefit of pulling out my phone is, is minor. This episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is brought to you by Tokenly. Tokenly. Limitless tokens for a tokenless world. The magic word for today's episode is blockchain. That's B-L-O-C-K-C-H-A-I-N. Blockchain. You've got until the 12th of September to visit letstalkbitcoin.com or the Let's Talk Bitcoin iOS app to enter it for your share of the listener rewards. So there was a very shrill fire alarm that lasted for about two minutes worth of this panel. I'm going to save your ears the strain and just summarize what happened. The question is asked of Brock Pierce, quote, do you see an opportunity with the convergence of crowdfunding technology and blockchain technology? 
His response can be summarized as, quote, I think that crowdfunding is democratizing the world of early stage financing. Blockchain Capital, that's his company, runs a syndicate to allow others to co-invest. And he's hugely supportive of crowdfunding, and they try and take every deal that they do to crowdfunding in some capacity or another, uh, assuming that the team is not against it. The follow-up question was, do you know any companies in particular that are focused on this convergence? And we rejoin the conversation now with Brock's response. I mean, look at a lot of, you know, uh, you've seen what are called crowd sales, which, you know, it's a lot of the industry has actually been kind of playing around with, you know, ideas around how to run a crowdfunding campaign. If you look at things like Ethereum, you know, that was a crowd sale where you got tokens, but that's, that's crowdfunding directly from the community of, you know, sort of interested participants. You know, the, the distinction here uh, is crowd sale versus crowdfunding. You're not supposed to be selling equity unless it's to accredited investors, but those, you know, that landscape is changing rapidly as well with the Jobs Act. I mean, you're right in the heart of it, but you're seeing yet distributed sort of means by which, you know, people can participate in the financing of bringing a product to market. and. All right, uh, Mark. I wanted to jump in. I, I want to get a little bit more specific about, yeah, yeah. If you're a you know, founder of a of a, a blockchain startup, you're looking for funding. I mean, what do you guys look for in um, in a company, in a founder? Uh, are you primarily hiring for an idea, for talent, uh, for the intellectual property, a user base? I mean, what are the key elements that you really jump out to? You say, this is a company I want to dig into and really understand. Well, yeah. For, I mean, first, it's very similar to all other investment areas that we invest in. It's really, the main thing is always the team. You look at the people. Are these the right people to run this? Are, are they motivated by, are they passionate about it? Or are they motivated by more by making quick money? Because that's, that's not going to work. Um, are they hardworking people? Um, are they smart? I think smart people are the best people to work with, even though they can be a bit stubborn sometimes. Um, but. And then, and, you know, stubbornness can have a negative side, obviously, because some people have this one idea, they want to make this idea, but, if it, but when they realize that, or when we realize that it's not going to work, they don't want to, they don't, don't, don't really want to change it. Um, so the, the team is the most important thing. Um, the IP is much less important at the, at the early stages. User base is not important in the early stages. It's about the growth rates. I mean, they, they have to grow quickly, of course. Um, we try not to get in too early. We want to see some traction first. So really in a very early stage startup that's raising money for an idea, we probably won't get in. Uh, we used to do that, but we're now getting to, to more you know, later stage investments. And, and what's more important to you? Is it a business idea or is it, is it would you rather hire somebody with a business background uh, or a technology background in this? Or is it really hard to, it's impossible to say one or the other, you have to kind of separate it out? I think it depends on where in the stack in the ecosystem they would sit. You know, and I think to uh, re-echo your comment, I think we're in a very early, still a relatively early stage of the development of this industry where there's a lot of moving parts and a lot of things that are really unknown. So the team really does matter a ton. And if there's, if there's a way to sort of pick people that have a good kind of picture for what the system kind of looks like, where the holes are, where it might go, and they just apply their talent to solving those little cracks. Some are going to be technical. Like, you know, I think one of the areas that would be, I think, is very needed. I don't know how investable it is, but you know, the notion of sort of an API that sits across the blockchain that makes it easy for developers, that, that's very needed. You'd want somebody that's technical there. But if it's an applications layer thing that's sitting on top of that, the, the more you know, business background somebody has that can see what to build. That's yeah, yeah, I was talking to some folks at a, at a startup, unnamed, but they were talking about how the technology folks 
at this stage of the game, are really interested in, a lot of them are interested in protocols, which are not really a direct line to a business, um, versus guys on the business side who are really looking for solutions-oriented kind of stuff. They're saying, there's a problem, we need to solve it, let's fi figure out how to solve that and deliver a product to market. And then you get technology guys who are like, well, we're really building this incredibly um, uh, imaginative infrastructure. We don't know quite where it's going. And we really want to work on the hard technical problems of building out the protocol. Well, what is needed, I think, you know, like every, every technology-based industry goes through that. Like you think about the beginning of the semiconductor industry, you know, you had a bunch of physicists trying to figure out how to make efficient transistors. But over time, it became, in a way, an applications layer. It may not seem like that to people that aren't in the chip area, but a microprocessor, the value isn't necessarily the transistors. It's how they are expressed, how, how the blocks function together in kind of a system. And I think we're, we're kind of, we're beyond that part, I think. But I think the, the underlying pipes have to run very well. And that opens up the opportunity for people that don't focus on that to add richness to the system. And I think you know both of those are going to be needed. Steve, um, yeah, I think I think it's it is important to remember that you know this is a technology looking for problems. It's not like someone came along and said, "Hey, everything's broken. Let's invent Bitcoin." One person did, I guess. But um, you know, we're finding new applications for this uh, technology all the time. So we're typically looking for um, you know people who are trying to solve something big, and you know, little ideas are, are challenging to invest in because. You know, they become features for someone else to buy, but um, th those are clearly the best things to find, and uh, team is a very important part of what we look for. Um, and you know, we're lucky to, to you know to have a lot of great technologists in this area, so we, we typically aren't super short of that issue right now. Are there any red flags that uh, leap out at you when you're looking at an investment opportunity to say, okay, this is either not right or there's some clear avoid kind of a signal? Yeah, they got a kite surf. <laughs> um, no, uh, I mean, the obvious stuff, you know, we, we always do background checks. I mean, not super deep, but, you know, we, we do due diligence on people. We call people, call references. Um, you know, track record is, is important, but, you know, having tried and failed at something can be as important as having tried and succeeded because you, you often learn a lot in a failure. Um, but I mean, a lot of it is, is, is it's also like choosing a co-founder, like choosing an investor is, is, is like choosing a partner. It is a choosing partner. You're looking for somebody to be with you for the long haul. Um, so the chemistry has to work both ways. And that's, that's the big, probably the biggest part of anything we do. Uh, just turning to the, the sort of the timeline for liquidity in some of these investments, are you guys even thinking about uh, what, what kind of, um, you know, what kind of period you're looking at for, for liquidity uh, on some of these things? Well, I mean, the, the, the industry is accelerating, you know, rapidly. Uh, I mean, we've got, I think, nearly a billion dollars of capital has been invested in this space by VCs and angels uh, around the world. That's more than 1996 internet. Uh, and so with, as that capital is deployed and turned into products and services, which we'll see over the next one, two or three years, um, you know, I think that you'll start to see sort of acquisitive sort of behavior by the big incumbents. I mean, the banks are coming on board at a rate that I couldn't have imagined. Uh, we're getting sort of widespread uh, buy-in from the major financial institutions that I would have thought would be a still a couple of years from now. And so now that that interest is there, now that they're exploring and playing around with it, I would not, I, I, I imagine we're going to see some meaningful uh, exits as early as next year, uh, which is faster than I would have assumed. What do you think of Coincilium and the IPO? 
Quincilium? Uh, I mean, so they're, they're essentially like a, a public fund. So they, they, they had, had a, an original vehicle that they had raised money through a, a sort of a crowdfunding type uh, play using Havelock and now they've evolved into a, a probably a better vehicle and structure for what they're doing, which is a, it's an AIM listing uh, where they're going to, I think, raise 10 or $20 million and they're essentially a public venture fund. Um, so I think it's great. I think the industry needs more capital. Uh, if you, there's maybe six or seven sort of kind of dedicated investors that you know focus on this as an industry, and the combined capital of all of us is under a hundred million dollars. Uh, so the industry needs more capital, more dedicated investors, and you know always happy to see anyone new, you know, coming into the space. Most of us, co I mean, Steve and I have co-invested in probably a dozen companies together. Uh, none of us have enough capital to do this on our own. So I think it's a great thing. Yeah, listen, time frame is a funny thing because it, it's, um, I think it's, it's less a function of the company and industry and more a function of the cyclicality of exit markets. I mean, there are some periods where anything can get liquid, you know, which we saw in like 97 through 99. And we're not quite in that now, but, you know, I think we're in a more liquid period right now than we were three years ago. And I think it's the cycles there that dominate um, whether something can get liquid quick or not. So. I think it, I've, I've been venture funding companies for 25 years, and um, I don't actually think about, uh, I, don't, I don't have a time frame in my mind when I make an investment. I tend to look for something that I think will be potentially a foundational layer of the ecosystem. Because in the best scenario, you're funding things that you would never ever sell because they just keep getting bigger. And of course, that doesn't happen very often, but, but uh, that would be ideal. Well, the, the, problem, the problem, of course, is that funds have a lifetime, right? So your, your, your LPs want to get their money back. Um, I, actually, so I didn't fully agree with Brock, actually. I, I think for, when I look at, at, at the, the, uh, the, the market right now for, for blockchain technologies, we, we don't expect exits in the next four to five years, actually. Um, we may see exits to, to banks, for example, buying technologies or buying teams. Uh, but like a big IPO or so, I, I, I don't see it happening in the next couple of years. The, the market is too small. Regulations are not clear enough yet, so it's going to take it's going to take more time, I think, than, than an average uh, VC investment. I, I mean, I'm not sure if the time scales are truly speeding up or, or not. It may be the case, but I mean, traditionally, you're looking at a seven to ten year hold, right? And uh, so, especially any of the, the large IPOs, closer to ten years, it just takes a long time for a company to mature to that point. So. Depends on stage too. Like if you're a seed investor, it takes a really long time. If you're from, you know, from stage, yeah. You might try to do something in three years and plan for it, but we're mostly early stage because the industry's so early. And to, to Brock's point, uh, the entry of the big financial, traditional financial companies into this space, that creates a whole different kind of exit opportunity. Um, uh, how it has the entry of those uh, companies changed the, the, uh, the market? Um, have you guys noticing it in deal making or, or are they showing up at the same meetings as you guys or uh, uh, how, how are they manifesting in, in terms of pursuing these kinds of deals? I mean, uh, the, most of the, uh, the banks are not yet looking to make direct investments or buy things yet. Uh, they're doing what they should be doing, which is they're getting smart, you know, by rolling up their sleeves, sleeves and, and playing around with, you know, the technology. And a lot of them have been doing that for the last 12 to 24 months. It's only been in the last few months that they've been very public about these these actions. You know, companies like Deloitte, I think, have 90 employees working on blockchain-related, you know, sort of activities, and almost every major bank has a working team, 
you know, dedicated to understanding this technology, understanding the risks that it presents, as well as the opportunities. And, uh, you know, they're getting smart. You're going to start to see, I think, action. Uh, you, you'll start to see stuff over the next 12 months. And that, what, that is that thing that could lead to, you know, some potential acquisitions. But I'm not seeing them from an investment perspective. But they're showing up. Uh, you know, you, you'll see it most uh, of the large sort of Bitcoin conferences or, or blockchain-related conferences. You know, bankers walking around and asking questions. And there's more and more of that. Now they're even hosting events. <laughs> Is there any sense of who is taking the, the most innovative stance in this regard? Is it Citibank? They've got their Citicoin going and R&D seems like they're investing pretty heavily. Is there any particular players who are kind of rising up as being the most forward thing? Goldman, Goldman Sachs made a direct investment uh, in Circle. So, I mean, I, that's kind of the, they've taken the biggest step. Uh, Royal Bank of Scotland has just you know, announced that they've got three, four, five billion dollars dedicated to kind of new technology, uh, and they're very, very focused on uh, what's happening here. The, the, the chairman of our advisory board is, on, is the lead independent director at RBS. Um, and so they're very smart. I've, I flew over to Australia recently, and I met with uh, uh, one of the largest financial institutions there and spent a half a day educating them at their offsite. Uh, and they've built an entire you know, smart contract end-to-end. -end. Uh, I'll leave out specifically what it's doing because it's not known, but. I mean, they're, they're building prototypes and actually experimenting running their businesses uh, on an entirely sort of blockchain solution end-to-end, -end, including things like smart contracts. I'm not, I'm not so sure specifically with respect to blockchain, but I've been most impressed with BBVA, the bank that bought uh, Simple. And uh, they really are, from, a, from the top down, they've actually inverted their whole management philosophy to lead with technology. So uh, I, I'd watch out for them, for sure. They've also invested Coinbase, yeah. And, and I like Nasdaq. It's not a real financial institution, of course, but I mean the fact that they're using the blockchain for their for their private market. I mean that's a that's a major step, I think. It looks like a, a lot of these uh, players in the government, uh, even governments, are, are trying to uh, start their own blockchains. Um, what, what do you think about the viability of that? I mean, it comes back to a question I asked kind of earlier in the in the session. I mean, how viable is it, and do we eventually get a separation of these types of? Uh, um, services from the Bitcoin blockchain, or I think one of the presenters earlier today kind of showed a, a graph where Bitcoin ultimately catches up and surpasses. Yeah, I, actually, I, I'd like to dig into that too, because I don't think we really addressed it. Um, and, and um, you know, like other panelists opinion here, but is there such a thing uh, as lock-in with respect to the particular Bitcoin blockchain, or is it the case that there's going to be crossing technologies where, okay, so the banks have their own and governments have their own, there's Ethereum, et cetera, and yet they'll all interoperate because fundamentally blockchain technology is like IP, uh, Internet Protocol, and in that as long as you talk the fundamentals of blockchain tech, you can have as many different blockchains and they'll all interoperate just fine. Um, I think the answer is yes. Um, the, the way I look at it is, you know, inside your company, there's no reason why I need to go and address your printer to print something, right? But it does have an IP address. And that printer can see the internet, but I can't see it, right? So in the same way, I think you're going to have private blockchains which can see the public blockchain and information stored on it and can see information. Say if you've got Citibank and Morgan Stanley doing something, you know, very financially oriented, um, some kind of you know private stock trade or something. They're going to be able to see each other's information that they're making publicly available, but the internal workings are, are hidden 
but they're not hidden to people inside those organizations. Now, the currency that's used on one or the other, I'm not sure it's super important at this point. In the end, I think all these things will converge to the Bitcoin blockchain becoming the kind of the main you know, highway or whatever, the main bus for this information. And then these private you know, ledgers and buses will be, will be internal to organizations. It'll be the same technology, I think, in the end. Is this, is this, is this uh, is sort of the, the comparison would be to an internet, corporate internet, or VPN versus open internet? Well, I, I think the debate is largely only occurring because you know Bitcoin's got a reputation problem, uh, and the visceral reaction from a lot of these larger financial institutions are okay. We get it. We like the technology, but we don't like being associated with you know Mt. Gox and Silk Road and uh, and things of that nature. Um, but uh, I, I think they'll get over that at some point. Uh, uh, and they're going to understand that there's a benefit to using this giant distributed network of computers that they don't have to pay for versus, you know, building up, you know, isolated instances that they have to, I think long term makes sense. And the companies that are out there building and productizing uh, on top of Bitcoin's blockchain, companies like Chain, for example, uh, you know, have a great team of developers that are you know, going to help these institutions, you know, get the products that they need to market. And that's being built on top of Bitcoin's blockchain. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I think you'll, you'll have a number of companies that set up, you know, their own sort of ledgers using, you know, some other, uh, not Bitcoin's blockchain. But I think over time, the benefits of using Bitcoin's blockchain are there for everyone, and I think long-term it wins. Yeah, I agree. It's, kind of, it's basically an economy of scales question, right? I mean, if, if you get enough nodes of commonality, it's cheaper to make the silicon and run the electricity and everything else if it's sort of standard. And uh, having a your own little thing. It's kind of like, you know, proprietary computer in the face of the PC at some point. Or, or Minitel in France. Yes, yes. Yeah. So I want to end this with a question to Rafe, was a crowdfunder. Um, what are the, pro the prospects that uh, blockchain and Bitcoin disrupt the investors? Uh, and we have a new model that creates uh, completely new systems for, for uh, financing and creating, uh, giving uh, smaller investors uh, equity in startup companies, and does that pose any kind of long-term uh, disruption to the standard VC model? Well, I mean, I think it's already happening just with crowdfunding in general, but you're already starting to see with these crowd sales that really look a lot to me like equity sales at the distributed crowd level. So, for instance, Swarm and Ethereum had these 10 to $30 million seemingly overnight equity raises Maybe they're not equity, but um, you know they serve the purpose of funding the company and getting them off the ground in the same way that you know uh, a big venture capital round used to. Um, and it's 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 extremely uh, democratizing uh, and empowering for anybody who's interested in in uh, you know bringing their idea into the world. So I think it's it's already starting to happen. It's inevitable. It's a question about whether the governments are going to figure out how to get on the side of it or really um, create problems. Um, but I, I, I'm actually very encouraged by the, um, you know, the way that the regulators in the various uh, departments of the U.S. government have, um, have sought to get in front of it and be collaborative um, in, in this case. Yeah. And yeah, what you're seeing as well is, I mean, some companies you cannot even invest in, like Lazus was mentioned this morning. You basically, they, they are trying to disrupt the Uber market, I would say. I would love to be an investor in them, but if you buy their tokens, 
they cannot be sold actually. They're, they're used for, for their service in the future. So as a VC, you, there's no way to get in there. I mean, you're not gonna buy these tokens and tell your LPs, you know, we have these tokens in a, in a, in a car sharing service. And that's, that is a risk for the VC industry, I think. Uh, what about Jan Talon? Did you read the news about his, uh, his new equity fund that he's trying to put together? It's called Thunderbeam. Uh, you mentioned blockchain and the, the ability to have instant liquidity for investors uh, and a whole bunch of new kind of features around that stuff. But uh, I just throw it out there. It's one more thing to noodle on. Thanks for listening to episode 244 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's show was provided by Keynote 2015. This episode was sponsored by Tokenly.com. This episode was edited by Adam B. Levine and featured music from Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. Have a good one.